Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello and welcome to The Rest is History. Last October, we recorded a two-part special on the remarkable political story, which became known as Watergate. Dominic is a world authority on the subject, and his brilliant retelling of the story was just amazingly compelling, and um, I thought very often very, very funny. And today marks 50 years to the day since the break-in at the Democratic headquarters in the Watergate building in Washington, D.C., which marked the start of the scandal that would ultimately unseat U.S. President Richard Nixon. And so we thought, because of that, to mark the anniversary, we'd re-release our two episodes largely for the benefit of the many new listeners who have been kind enough to subscribe to The Rest is History over the past eight or nine months and may have missed the shows the first time round. That's not to say, of course, that our longer standing listeners should ignore them. They certainly uh, would benefit from a second hearing. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to The Rest is History. There are bad reviews and then there is the obituary that the gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson gave President Richard Nixon. If the right people had been in charge of Nixon's funeral, Thompson wrote, his casket would have been launched into one of those open sewage canals that empty into the ocean just south of Los Angeles. He was a swine of a man and a jabbering dupe of a president. Nixon was so crooked that he needed servants to help him screw his pants on every morning. Even his funeral was legal. He was queer in the deepest way. His body should have been burned in a trash bin. And as I read that, I hear the laughter from top historian of modern America, Dominic Sandbrook. And Dominic, you gave me that quote. I'm not going to pretend I did. that I found I it did. myself. Obviously a favourite of yours. Um, and today's episode, it, it's, it's not on Nixon per se, but it's on Watergate. And Nixon obviously lies at the absolute heart of that scandal. Um, and I thought that the, maybe the best we've got had loads and loads of questions on this. But I thought maybe the way to kick it off is with a friend of the show, Stephen Jensen, who asks, what is it about Watergate that has made the suffix gate synonymous with scandal? Compared to the alternatives, does it deserve the dubious honour of being the linguistic mother of all scandals? Well, that's a great question, Tom. As you know, I've been looking forward to doing this since we started this podcast. And um, just on the Hunter S. Thompson line, I used to get my students. We did a whole course on Nixon that ran all year. We had four hours every week just on Nixon uh, in their third year. And I used to get them to read that obituary and write write kind of comments on it. Hunter S. Thompson actually travelled with Nixon in the 1972 uh, election campaign. He wrote a book about it, didn't he? And they talked about... Fear and loathing? Yeah, fear and loathing on the campaign trail. And they talked about American football. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson was astounded by Nixon's knowledge of American football. Uh, So they did have a little bit. There was a little bit of common ground between the two of them. Um, But Stefan's question, which is a great question. Nixon is at the core of Watergate. So part of it is the character is this extraordinary Shakespearean character um, that we'll be talking about in a second. It's also because I think Watergate is the first great TV scandal 
so it plays out live on american television often um the senate hearings are on tv every afternoon where soap operas used to be so there's this sense of this kind of melodrama and these extraordinary characters i mean we're going to come to some of these characters you know the the actual essence of the scandal is actually pretty small but it comes to consume this sort of almost dickensian cast of kind of misfits and eccentrics and it well, takes it's not the scandal it's the cover-up that's that's the yeah cliche, although the it? scandal itself is a pretty good scandal i mean bugging okay. you, you know your opponent's headquarters and actually it's also what the scandal reveals about the nixon white house and nixon's own bizarre and tortured psychology i mean i think that um i, I like to think that this uh, this podcast is definitely the podcast for 70s political scandals so we've already done the jeremy thorpe yeah. scandal yeah which features dead dogs and fruit machine magnates and all kind yeah. of fruit machine magnets. but it's it's I mean, as, is, is as British as a carry-on film. <laughs> it is. Whereas this, this is the scandal for imperial America. It is. Uh, and I guess that that's why it has the resonance that perhaps the Jeremy Thorpe well, scandal well, doesn't. Well, it's the combination, actually, Tom. You're absolutely right. It is the, the climax of what political historians call the imperial presidency, so the kind of Cold War presidency. But it's the combination of that with the humdrum everyday very human kind of almost petty resentments of nixon himself that drive the scandal i mean i've got so much to say about this but so much of it is about nixon because without nixon there is no watergate he's at the absolute center of it and and, okay. and lying at the center is his background and his all his pent-up okay. resentments so on that topic we have we have a question from james Bagley. i hope i've pronounced his name right how important is Richard Nixon's feeling of outsider status in understanding his actions? And do you both agree, effectively, Dominic, do you agree, <laughs> that what links Trump and Nixon is that they're both driven by an anger towards a ruling class that will never truly accept them? Now, I think we should just park the comparison with, with Trump okay. for now. Yeah. Yeah. But that question about, about Nixon's upbringing, sense of himself as an outsider important uh it's very important and this is great because i can now launch into my hour-long prepared um <laughs> uh biography of, of richard nixon so as i said i taught this course on nixon that went all year and i um the first thing i got the students to get the students to do i used to say well we're not going to call him nixon we should call him dick throughout uh because i really wanted them to empathize with nixon also just amuse me in a very childish way and um i think getting inside as i used to you say to them, them you've got to get inside dick's head and um, I thought I think that's absolutely crucial to understanding how the scandal played out. So let's talk about Nixon. Nixon is born in 1913 in a place called Yorba Linda, California, which is this scruffy, um, sort of nondescript edge of L.A. kind of now a suburb, but then kind of on the edge of L.A., quite rural. And he's absolutely one of those people that we talked about in our California podcast. And again, in our Silicon Valley podcast, um, he's a white um, he's a white Protestant kind of Midwestern American stock. Kind he's a Quaker, middle isn't he? American. He is a Quaker, and that's really important. So his the Quakers don't swear. They don't. They don't drink. They don't swear. They don't dance. They don't approve of kind of fun, to put it bluntly. So his parents, Frank and Hannah, they've moved from kind of the Midwest, and they are the classic kind of people who move to California, and it doesn't quite work out. It, everything goes wrong. So they found uh, a lemon ranch and it doesn't work. They don't sell any lemons. And then they found a grocery store and a garage and a kind of garage, a gas station attached to it. And it's really hard work. And young Richard has to get up at four o'clock and kind of load, I don't know, potatoes or whatever it is. Um, so he grows up in, in relative poverty in this Midwest, in this Quaker family 
uh, Midwestern stock in California, there's this there's this sense of disappointment that hangs over them in the kind of 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. He's one of multiple brothers. You'd enjoy this time. They're all named after, well, four of the five are named after English kings. So there's Harold, Arthur, um, Richard, and Edward. And then there's also Donald, who's <laughs> so which Richard is um is Richard Nixon named after Richard the Lionheart apparently presumably not Richard the no 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 although that's a great comparison <laughs> um, or indeed Richard the Second no he's Richard the Lionheart um, All right. so two of the brothers die of tuberculosis um, Harold and Arthur and this kind of hangs over the family it's quite a sort of grim environment Nixon says in his memoirs his mother his mother his mother never hugged him or showed him any physical affection but he could see from her eyes that she loved him. So it was it's sort of very telling. Slightly. So a, a kind of classic upper-class British maybe yes, yes, I suppose so. Except the difference is they're so poor. So Nixon is that classic. Is yeah. that classic thing? He's very driven. He's very bright. He does very well at school, and he's offered a scholarship. I think or offered a place at Harvard. Um, there's no doubt that he's very clever. I mean, this is why the Donald Trump comparison rather falls down. He can't take it up because he's needed at home to help. Um, and also because his brother is ill and his mum needs to look after the care and all this kind of thing. So Nixon goes to his local college, Whittier College, and right there you have the origin... You could almost say Watergate starts right there. He is um, an, a bit of an outsider, kind of a lower-middle-class, kind of poor, relatively poor kid, although very bright. He talks later on about the laughs and slights and snubs that he suffers when he's there. He's not allowed, he's not invited to join the top fraternity on campus who are called the Franklins. I think we talked about this right at the beginning of the podcast series with um, Trump and Caesar and all that sort yeah. of stuff. Uh, he, so he founds his own called the Orthogonians, the square shooters, who are for the kind of outsiders. And right there you have this, he's got that sense. Um, I, I hate to say this, Tom, but it's you and your, your yachting shoes. Nixon, Richard Nixon <laughs> is a man who goes through life permanently in the wrong shoes. Um, there's even a, Kennedy. There's even a very famous Kennedy story. Knows what yeah, the right ones. That wear. Nixon is told to do a Kennedy-style photo op by his aides, and he walks onto the beach, and he's wearing his shoes are too smart. He's wearing smart kind of office shoes when he should be wearing kind of you know deck shoes. Yeah. Your, your, your yachting <laughs> shoes. So yeah. that that nags at him the whole time. He actually does really well. He goes to Duke Law School. He goes into the Navy. He's a lieutenant. He's presumably on a scholarship. Yeah. He's, he's very Duke. bright. Um, everybody says he's hardworking. Interestingly, one of the things people say about him at this stage is he's honest. Uh, so yeah. he's, he's, not un, he's not unpopular, Tricky. but he's just... He's an outsider. He's, a, he's that classic... And he has hard, quite a good war, doesn't he? Yeah, he's a quartermaster in the Navy. Um, so, so, so Quakers don't fight either. So he could have... So he, right, he I mean, overcomes he that. A, and his Quakerism, yeah. I think, doesn't matter to him kind of theologically, as it were. Yeah. I think it matters culturally. And I think there's yeah. always this sense of Nixon that he's a bit... Repre somebody's always, always having more fun than he is, and he's missing out. Yeah. And, it's, and it obviously becomes the Kennedys. And you can absolutely see... I mean, we'll come back to this point. But you can absolutely see he is that classic, you know, that the self-made, driven kid very bright who's conscious that he's missing out that other people have a okay. grace and elegance and ease he's never going to be james bond okay you know. okay so 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 just so he then he, he kind of gets into republican yeah because republican he's a quaker party. by the way he makes and he, he has to he go into the republican party because he's a protestant because that's the the thing that you do okay so so just this idea that the, the 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 kind of guy who's looking up at the the elite yeah i mean that, that that's i guess 
kind of something that is a feature of the Republican Party now. But not then, you're right. The, the, yeah, Nixon's one of the so, people who... Who's so it's the, unusual, isn't it? It's quite that, unusual. It, he's a, and it's so, so in a sense, is he kind of... I mean, he's a, he's a kind of portent of this idea that the deplorables are going to sign up to the Republican a little Party bit. rather than a to little the Democrat bit, yes, Party. A little bit. He doesn't really emphasise that as much in the 1940s and 1950s, but certainly later on. Um, he's, he's the man who coins the phrase the silent majority. He talks again and again when he's president about the little guy, the little man, the common man, all these kinds of things. So absolutely he does that. He's absolutely part of that kind of realignment. And he's a big anti-communist. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing. Nixon, right from the start, is regarded as a, as a deplorable himself by the kind of patrician, liberal, kind of democratic elite. He, I think it's because California politics is pretty rough. He uses anti-communism in 1946 and again in 1950 when he runs for the Senate. Um, he he always seems to, there's this weird thing which I, I he, he always seems to fight a little bit dirtier or to be a bit more competitive than everybody else. And it's not just a question of substance, it's a question of style, actually. So mm -hmm. something that you would forgive in a more patrician who would then be able to make a joke about it afterwards Nixon, there's always this stuff that he is, he's, he starts to be perceived quite early on as kind of dark, jowly, over-aggressive. So there's a famous cartoonist of the 50s called Herblock who was always drawing him kind of cl climbing in or out of a, a sewer. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then he really... <laughs> so that's the thing that Thompson picks up on. Yes, and he really disgraces himself in the eyes of the sort of patrician liberals um, in the early 1950s when he exposes a genuine communist spy a guy called Alger Hiss in the State Department. So I thought that was contested. It used to be contested, but it's not really contested anymore. Um, sort of declassified Soviet um, archives show that beyond, I, th I would say, reasonable doubt, I mean, some people will disagree, but beyond reasonable okay. doubt, Hiss was a fellow traveller, probably a communist spy. Nixon exposes him in a very aggressive way. And this is perceived as, you know, it's in for a dig. It's not what you do. Mm -hmm. Alger Hiss was one of us, very well-educated, oh, nice yeah. fellow, you know, lovely guest at a dinner party. Nixon's this god-awful hick from, you know, California. Yeah. Um, so, so people hold that against him. But that gets in the place as vice president to Eisenhower. But then when he, when, he gets, when he gets that ticket, doesn't he then run into problems again? He does. There's some he does. scandal. So this is a nothing scandal. It's a, it's a made-up scandal, really, uh, that he has been profiting from a fund Republican donors in California, but he have the essence of Nixon's appeal. Because what Nixon does, Nixon is terrified that Eisenhower is going to drop him from the ticket, Eisenhower, World War II general, um, because he thinks Eisenhower has basically made it clear that he thinks of Nixon as a kind of an ant beneath his shoe. And that he's, <laughs> and, um, he's Batman. Yeah, he despises Nixon. He th I mean, he basically signs up. To, he's just, Nick, he regards Nixon as an unfortunate necessity. Um, so Nixon makes this unprecedented live TV address Right. OK, so Dominic, Dominic in, we mentioned the Jeremy Thorpe scandal. Yes. Which featured a dead dog. Yeah. This features a live well, dog. You've got to have a dog in every podcast, right? So this yes. is a live dog. Nixon basically so says the there, are two, there are two great moment. lines. So one of them, he basically says this is all nonsense. There was a fund, but I haven't profited from it. You know, it's perfectly legal, blah, blah, blah. He says people, the, one of the most damaging allegations is that people say my wife, Pat, has got a, a mink coat. And he says she has not got a mink coat. She has a respectable Republican cloth coat. And all across the land, people are saying, oh, hurrah for Nixon. <laughs> Isn't this wonderful? And then he says, now, there is one gift that we have. That we have taken he said somebody read in the newspaper that my girls trisha and julie and um, they wanted a dog and what did they send us in a box they sent us a lovely dog um and the girls called him checkers 
and the girls love the dog and whatever they say about it we're gonna keep it or something and of course you see high-minded tom hollandish people across america are vomiting Vomited. into their yeah, waste paper <laughs> baskets and salt of the earth dominic sandbrooks are wiping away manly tears <laughs> and saying what a man what a family <laughs> so yeah so i think eisenhower was one of these people who's vomiting into a waste paper basket but he's forced his hand has been forced by nixon so nixon then stays on as on the ticket um and then, of course, there's another great sort of crisis in Nixon's life. Uh, so in 1960, he he basically inherits the Republican nomination from Eisenhower. Has he been a good vice president? He's been all right, actually. Yeah, he's done more than any vice president before. I mean, Eisenhower treats him like dirt throughout and tries to get rid of him in 1956. But Nixon's like a sort of, he's like a cockroach. He can't be killed. So yeah. Nixon goes on trips and stuff and people throw stones at him in South America um and uh, yeah, presumably yeah so he kind of look he's, he's fine and he's right in the center of the republic standing up to communism he's a, he's, yeah. he's a moderate he's actually not on the right he's he's slap bang in this sort of center he'd fit perfectly into kind of the tory party of the 1950s actually in england so he's the republican candidate in 1960 and he's against basically his worst nightmare uh, an east coast patrician han incredibly handsome you know, who absolutely know the right shoes to wear on. Yeah, yacht. a man who's completely oversexed, who's always wearing yachting shoes, a man who'd won the Pulitzer Prize for something that is, is, somebody else had written for him, uh, a man whose father had got his mates to do his university thesis for him, John F. Kennedy. So a man who's got the, all the grace and elegance and all the connections, everything that Nixon hasn't got. And Kennedy wins by this very tight margin after a debate in which Nixon is perceived to have done better on radio and famously worse on television because he looks sweaty and kind of jowly and, and stuff. And shadow. Exactly. And what's worse, what's even worse for Nixon, is that he, he could have won that election, actually. I mean, I, what I mean is he may well have won that election. But his, didn't Kennedy's daddy buy it? Right. Him? There were allegations of uh, um, vote stuffing in Illinois and in Texas. Maybe not enough, but enough for there to be... a. A question but, mark and nixon doesn't contest Dominic, the results unlike donald yeah. trump right so i was going to say because because we've we've already had the comparison um with uh with trump raised i mean that it, nixon doesn't contest it even though he thinks it might have happened for the good of the american republic yeah for the good of the american is, is republic that fair but well it's partly that it's also because partly around people around him are saying you know this is we're in the middle of the cold war you know this is you shouldn't really contest it and it's not like he takes ages to make a decision he doesn't he, straight away he basically or very quickly he decides he's not going to contest and, and it is the right decision um it's you know, the it patriotic is the, decision yeah it is the patriotic decision and i think it's also the right decision from his own sort of career point of view because of course he does then come back eight years later to become the republican nominee in 1968 so he kind of instead of going off to become a i mean he does go off to become a new york lawyer but his heart's not really in it what he really wants to do is get back into politics he has that burning, he, tries to, but, to, he, he runs he runs for the uh, governorship of california he does in 1962 and it doesn't really work out and that doesn't go well no and at the end he loses to uh, pat brown and at the end he he, sh he he loses it with the press and he says you know you've got what you wanted well gentlemen you won't have nixon to kick around anymore and they all say oh typical nixon such a bad loser he's such a sort of you know he's such a scumbag from the from yorba linda of course he doesn't know how to behave um but that aside after that he then kind of slightly reinvents himself as the kind of sane center of the republican party so he basically just and the context for this the, the context for this i guess 
going into 67, 68 is the counterculture. Yeah. Protests against the Vietnam War, Absolutely. hippies, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, and he's a he's a he's a guy who wears business shoes to the beach. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> it's all about shoes, shoes and dogs. What this podcast is all about, <laughs> what we really specialise in. That's absolutely right. So America feels like it's, it's unraveling. It's, so it's the culture war. The Democrats. It's, it's yeah. the first blast of, of the culture war as we would now recognise. A little bit, actually. Yes, a little bit. The re- Democrats are tearing themselves apart. Lyndon Johnson's been sort of booted out because of Vietnam. Uh, you're right that the the headlines are full of rioting. The civil rights movement um, has sort of passed its peak and uh, Martin Luther King has been assassinated and then Robert Kennedy is... And against that background, Nixon basically says, you know, I am the 50s in human form. I am... I I promise law and order. He says law and order again and again. He says he has a secret plan to end the Vietnam War. You won't tell anybody what it is, but people say, oh, that sounds splendid. Yes, um, hurrah. So he is elected. Quite a tight election, but it's, you know, it's fine. He gets in. He gets in. Um, And Okay, so... Yeah. So he becomes president, and I think it's time for another question, this time from Classicist, who asks, for most people, Nixon is synonymous with Watergate and nothing else. Did he have any significant political achievements during his presidency that have been overlooked or ignored? What would his legacy have been if Watergate had never happened? Okay, well, that's a, so, that's a great question. Um, at, so his presidency is very turbulent, but you could argue quite successful. So he takes office... Well, he gets the moon landings, doesn't he, for a start? Well, that's, that's not... <laughs> and he must have enjoyed that because, because that was a kind of Kennedy It was thing. a Kennedy he thing, then, yes. He's then able to pocket. Yeah, I think so, he has probably has slightly mixed feelings about it because everyone knows it's a Kennedy thing. But you're right. He does. He does sort of. He congratulates the astronauts and stuff. Um, he Vietnam completely overshadows his first term, trying to trying to pull out. I mean, basically, he escalates in order to get out by widening the war into Cambodia. Um, massive student protests throughout his whole first term. Um, but actually, when you go through, I mean, I, I don't think I'm out on a limb here. Almost all historians of Nixon's presidency would say this. When you go through policy by policy, he's actually pretty moderate. So his ambition is to be, and these are his kind of words with his aides, the American Disraeli, a Tory man with liberal measures. And actually, you can look at lots of things. He thinks, talks about having a guaranteed income, which is a thing that people talk about now, sort of left-wing idea. Uh, And and Dominic, hadn't he... um, uh, I I mean, he'd he'd been in favour of the civil rights Yeah, he's pretty moderate on civil rights. In the early 60s. Exactly, he's pretty moderate on civil rights. When it suits him, he bangs the law and order drum, and he sort of condemns radicals and all this kind of thing. But by and large, yes, he is on the sort of moderate wing of the Republican Party on civil rights. He's um, keen on kind of the environment. I mean, he sort of moans and groans about it, but he does it. Um, he, he goes to China. He goes, well, of course, this is about to get into his foreign policy achievements are his big thing. So he goes to Moscow and he goes to Beijing. I mean, amazing. And lots of people say only Nixon of, could have the, done this because he has the anti... Because the... the the United States, had, had they recognised China up to that point? No. Or what, what, no. What relations? So basically their relations were, were non-existent, utterly non-existent. Because they'd recognised Taiwan as right. legitimate exactly. So he ditches them China. and gets into bed basically with, with... But I mean the imagery. Nixon on the Great Wall of China. Nixon in Beijing. It's kind a of great clinking, wall. <laughs> yes, this is a, a great wall, as he says. Um, <laughs> Nixon kind of clinking glasses with, um, uh, with Mao Zedong. I mean... That's that's extraordinary. And then he does the same with Brezhnev in Moscow. So this is the heyday of détente. And he and Henry Kissinger, as Secretary of State, work incredible. I mean, this is basically their passion. Um, they think they're reordering the world. 
and 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 actually they are you know the nixon's meeting with mao is the moment that china comes out of the cold and and if you stand right back from this that's more significant than anything eisenhower kennedy johnson yeah. did arguably i mean i know that american listeners will say oh the civil rights movement is the big story and of course in many ways it is for americans but in terms of world politics yeah nixon going to china yeah. is absolutely seismic um okay and is that that's in his first term yeah right so, so 72 he he wins re-election I yeah, mean, so we, we're yet to get to actually game. Watergate itself, but right, seventy-two. Okay, but let's just let's just but let's just go through what what he does in his presidency. So seventy-two, we'll the Democrats do a sort of they do a British Labour Party in nineteen eighty-three. So they nominate um, a, a, a very impressive and admirable man who is a ridiculous man to choose as your nominee. So they nominate a man called George McGovern. He was a bomber pilot in World War Two. He's an ap he's a historian. Tommy's got a history PhD. He's a very mm -hmm. admirable, decent guy, but he. He's a he's a kind of on the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. He's the Michael Foot. He is the Michael Foot of, yeah. of American politics. And right from the moment they nominate him, it's obvious that Nixon is going to win. Uh, the Republicans call him the candidate of the three A's: acid, amnesty, and abortion. Amnesty for world for Vietnam War draft evaders. Um, and Nick, and McGovern never shakes the tag, and Nixon wins this colossal landslide. Massive landslide, biggest Republican landslide, I think, ever at that point. And if you want a, a clue of Richard Nixon's tortured psychology, it's this. What does he do on the night of that landslide victory? He goes alone to his study in the White House and he kind of turns off all the lights except this, um, except this desk light. So he's sitting like this sort of vampiric figure in the darkness. He puts on his, one of his favourite um, pieces of music, which is Victory at Sea, a sort of really kind of rubbishy 1950s, 1960s kind of classical soundtrack, um, <laughs> imagining ships clashing in the, in, the, in the storm. So he listens to that silent, kind of alone, head in his hands. And then he gets out a pad and he starts writing down what people will say about him, about his failures. Um, so he writes, the opposition line will be, RN let down his party. Um, all this stuff. Oh, if only he'd known what people would write about. Him. I know it's I, it's Dominic. I, Dominic, I think that's the perfect note on which to go and take a break. Okay. So this episode is about Watergate. So far, we haven't got to. It's like you we've, and Scottish we've politics. Done what, it's like you and Macbeth. I know. I know. Orthopoly or whatever. I know. But that's fine. I mean, if needs be, we can go into another episode. That's that's. I think we're fine. clearly going to have to so, do another episode. So let's take a let's take a break, and then when we come back, um, are you ready to to I'm, actually look at? I'm Watergate absolutely what poised. Happened? I'm I'm pumped. Okay. Brilliant. Okay, Fab fabulous. When we get back, Watergate. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. Our topic today is Watergate and in classic Rest is History style, we've done half an episode and we're yet to mention it. Uh, so Dominic, Watergate. Um, what is it? What's going on? So... Right from the start of Nixon's presidency, um, his administration had kept had started crossing the line um, in terms, as we've as we said before the break, it's an, an era of intense domestic turbulence, but it's also an era when they're in a war. OK, can, oh, just on that, the question from Guillermo Te Avaledo. We'll never get to Watergate, Richard, Tom. <laughs> no, no, but this, I think this ties in. Richard Nixon's personality and anguishes have been storied and abused. But how much was his seeming paranoia against his adversaries justified? The U.S. were on the height of radical mobilisation by the early seventies. Um, so, is that the context? Is, is is Nixon feeling 
yeah properly paranoid yeah i think it's not the 19 it's not the 1950s i think that's a reasonable point i mean even as henry kissinger famously said even paranoid people do have enemies um and uh they feel embattled at various points in his first term the white house is literally surrounded by student protesters so they can't really go out and washington is is brought to a halt there are there is some domestic terrorism by kind of far left groups like the weathermen um, in the late 60s, early 70s, there are the Black Panthers. I mean, all these things mm-hmm. are kind of exaggerated a little bit within the Nixon White House. That's John Lennon. <laughs> John, yes. And Elvis offering to help uh, bring him down. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. yeah, so so Nixon, um, I think Nixon genuinely feels that Nixon and Kissinger generally, they, they, they feel they're in a war. And they also feel that they can't trust the people around them. So from 1969 onwards, both Nixon and Henry Kissinger are, are, are constantly putting pressure on other people to find out who's leaking. They call for FBI wiretaps. Kissinger wants his own staff to be bugged to find out who's leaking to the press. Um, and in 1970, the Nixon administration, there's a talk, some of his aides talk about setting up their own intelligence service within the White House, not the FBI, not the CIA, but answerable only to Nixon and his aides that will basically, you know, survey their enemies sort of do dirty tricks all these kinds of things and you get the first and how legal would that have been very been completely illegal but of course nixon and his aides are saying to each other um it's the the kind of people in nixon's white house are really important so they're not often traditional party political people they're people he's brought with him from california they're people who worked in tv or advertising they're loyal just to nixon not to the party or not to so so who are the most significant so his chief of staff is a man called hr Haldeman. Uh, so I think he's a former advertising man. Um, uh, he's loyal purely to Nixon. He's so this is kind of Praetorian guard. Praetorian guard. guard. Exactly. The Berlin Wall, as they're called. H.R. Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, who is his um, uh, domestic policy chief. A guy called Charles Colson, who everybody calls an evil genius. Who basically goes around telling everybody he's an evil genius. Right, like Dominic Cummings. Right, exactly. Who's his political... <laughs> Dr. Um, evil. Henry Kissinger, obviously, is his national security advisor. And, and a lot of these people don't have, and maybe not so much Kissinger, but the others don't have links to the traditional kind of press elite. They're not part of that kind of what we in Britain would call the Westminster bubble. They're outsiders. Okay, and so again, that is kind of a parallel with Trump. Well... Uh, to a degree? I mean, Trump brings in kind of all kinds of old people who... I suppose to, uh, to some extent, but I, I mean, actually, this is... Because some of these people are very bright people that Nixon has around, and they're bright, talented, self-made people. I mean, they're not the kind of okay, well, let's flagrantly let's corrupt kind comparisons. of characters. And, but, but in 1971, they do their first really big dirty trick, the first antecedent of Watergate, which is... There's been leaks from within... There's been all these leaks about Vietnam, and a guy called Daniel Ellsberg links the, the Pentagon Papers, as they're called, this huge tranche of documents about Vietnam to show the government has been lying about Vietnam for years. But, you know, going back to kind of Kennedy and Johnson, he leaks it to the press. Kissinger and um, Nixon say this is utterly intolerable and they get a unit within the White House who call themselves the plumbers because their job is to stop leaks. And the plumbers <laughs> burgle... <laughs> Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist in, I think it's Los Angeles, to look for documents that will smear him. And that's the first real serious criminality, I would say. And, and does Nixon know what they're doing? Well, this is the question. We don't really know. But I think it's, I think Nixon definitely... Kind of nodding a wink? Nixon undoubtedly knows that something's going on because we know that throughout 1971, he is haranguing his men 
and saying i need you to find dirt on the opposition i need to go in and he becomes obsessed with this one think tank in washington called the brookings institution which still exists he tells them again and again I want you to get in there and blow the safe and find out what they've got. I mean, at one point, of they... Of the Brookings Institute? What, of the Brookings Institute? Yeah, of this think tank. At one point, they cook up so a scheme. What's he, what's, what's, why is he so He doesn't know what they've got, but he thinks it might be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so at one point, but, Tom, okay, but Dominic, one point, what I listen to this. At one point, they're gonna, he says, why don't you firebomb it? They have this plan to firebomb it, and then <laughs> they'll all be dressed as firefighters, and they'll run in, steal all the documents, <laughs> and run out again. So plumbers and firemen. Yeah, um... And the guys he's got doing this are bonkers. So one guy is called Howard Hunt. He was in the CIA and he was one of the orchestrators of the Bay of Pigs shambles at the beginning of the 1960s. So that's him. The other man is even an even more interesting man, a brilliant man, a man called G. Gordon Liddy. Are you aware of this man? <laughs> he's the one who, who gets nailed for it, doesn't he? Yeah. And he ends up being pardoned by Reagan? Uh, does he get pardoned? Somebody? I can't remember. He's basically, he's a Nazi. <laughs> He's dead now, so I can okay. say it. Because when the BBC filmed him for their Watergate documentary, he had himself filmed um, in front of this huge collection of guns <laughs> that he owned. And somebody who was involved with that said to me, well, that, you should think that's bad. In the next room, he had all, like, Nazi flags and pictures of Lenny Riefenstahl and stuff. I mean, he's an absolute lunatic. And he says on camera in the BBC documentary, you know, if Richard Nixon had told me to go and assassinate such and such a columnist, I was poised to do it. I was waiting for the... Uh, okay, so so... You've given the sketch of Nixon as a kind of moderate Republican, yeah, with a, with a lot of domestic and foreign policy successes to his name. I mean, clearly a very, very able, smart yeah. guy. Why is he employing a Nazi? I mean, I know what I know what the countercultural, the Hunter S. Thompson answer to that would be. He's a fascist, yeah. be, but because he is a fascist, yeah. but but I mean, he, he doesn't sound. Well, like I he think is. Gordon Liddy is a bit of an out, is a bit of eccentric, and his yeah, and his so. sort of strange Nazi. I mean, there is a story that he started showing footage of Nuremberg rallies or something in the White House. Um, <laughs> Triumph well, of the will. Not raise eyebrows. I or? think people just thought he's eccentric. They kind of smirked, you know, I, I think they because I mean, the rest of them aren't Nazis. They're nothing like Nazis. They're actually pretty moderate Republicans as well. But it's very Dr. Strange. It is a bit. It is a bit. <laughs> but Liddy is. Uh, I mean, so so they're hanging around. They're hanging around the, the Nixon White House and, and the, the, the presidential campaign comes around and Nixon says to his men, because Nixon believes in fighting really hard, if not dirty, even though he know, he must know that he's going to be. But, but Tom, he's paranoid. He feels okay, he, yes. he's always he it's always being taken away from him. He's always being cheated by the Eastern establishment. And right at the beginning of 1972, and he and he says, to, I mean, his the committee to re-elect the president, as they call, they're actually the CRP, but everybody calls them creep now because they they're just kind of, you know, yeah, great acronym. Exactly. Um, they're having all these meetings and Nixon says, you know, I need to find out that you're fighting really tough, that you're doing tough things. So so Liddy and Hunt have this ridiculous plan. It's got Operation Gemstone, they call it. I mean, some of it's absurd. They're going to deliver. I think they do do it. They deliver. They they order a thousand pizzas and have them have them sent to the Democratic National Committee just with a bill. Just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> just that well, to kind of bankrupt right. the, the Democratic. That's just laughable. <laughs> Liddy also goes. I mean, Liddy literally goes into a meeting and says, "I have a plan to. I'm going to." Um, hire a houseboat in miami and have it and have it staffed by the finest prostitutes in florida and then i will lure senior democrats to this houseboat or whatever and they will be which which 
which presumably is playing into the kind of the dark Quaker sense of maybe, yeah. Well, Nixon's not in the meeting. Elite Democrat. To be fair, Nixon's not in the meeting about the prostitutes. But you're right. I think. Well, the, the amazing thing is that when you hear the Nixon people talking about this, as they do, and uh, have done in documentaries since, they don't just say this was absolutely laughable and we're all wetting ourselves with amusement. <laughs> they, they seriously consider some of these ideas. <laughs> And they allow Liddy and Hunt, to, these clowns, to keep kind of, you know, walking around the White House or whatever, um, but it's, it's, suggesting mad it's, schemes. I mean, it's a bit like all the CIA plans to, to kill Castro. Right, I the mean, exploding cigar. Them, you can't believe that these guys are serious. Remember, there was a seashell. He would, they, they would plant a sea, exploding yeah. seashell on the seabed that he would pick up. <laughs> and there was also, they were going to uh, get powder that would make his beard fall out, that would humiliate him in the eyes of his Cuban fans. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you just don't know, do you, whether people are sitting around in meetings just completely taking the piss or whether they genuinely think these are good ideas. Anyway, anyway. So basically, they're having all these meetings... And they come up with a scheme. They're going to bug the Democratic National Committee. Now, the amazing thing about this, right, is that at this point, it's pretty obvious that Nixon is going to win the election yeah. by a, a massive margin. You know, he's going to coast. He could just stay in bed. So he doesn't need to He could stay it. in bed for six months and he'd still win the election. It's, it's yeah. mad. They, it's, everything is a shambles. They break into the Democratic... OK, OK, OK. So, so just, just before we actually do this... Yeah. Um, a question from Miguel de Miel. What did the president know about the break-in and when did he know it? Impo so, is, is, so, so is this being licensed by Nixon? I think it's highly unlikely. We don't know about the, um, whether, how much he knows beforehand. It's highly unlikely that he knows operational details. Um, on the other hand, it is likely that he knows they are going to do something. He knows they're up to no good. He is the very man who has been telling them about firebombing think tanks. Yes, yeah, so he's been leaning on them. He's been leaning on them. The pressure is coming undoubtedly from the top. What are you doing? And in a way, it's that, that weird thing where in any organisation, they just basically need to be able to tick a box that says, have firebombed somebody, have ordered pizzas, <laughs> yes. you know, yes. to get yes. Nixon off their case because he's pestering them. So... They break into the Democratic National Committee in this sort of grim, concrete monolith called the Watergate Building. Um, which is in Washington. Which is in Washington. And, and surprise, surprise, the bugs that they plant, they break in through an underground kind of um, car park, the garage at the bottom of the building. And the bugs don't really, they, I don't know, they don't work or they can't hear anything properly. And they say, we'll have to go back in and, and, and bug it again. So on the 17th of June, 1972... Um, five men, I've got their names written down somewhere, if you'd like to know who they are. Uh, yeah, I would. Yeah. They are James McCord, Frank Sturgis, Bernard Barker, Virgilio Gonzalez, and Eugenio Martinez. So they're basically, the majority of them are Cubans. They are people who worked for Howard Hunt when he was in charge of kind of Bay of Pigs, Cuban exile, CIA stuff. They're kind so of they're weird. Republican true believers. Yeah, they're kind of weird kind of Cuban exiles it, sort yep. of hanging around on the fringes of the CIA. Massively anti-communist. Massively anti-communist. So if they're told yep. they're doing a job for the White House, they'll be delighted. So they yep. break in. And then there's this kind of comedy of errors. So the doors are sort of self-closing doors, sort of self-locking. So they have to put masking tape over the kind of the, the bolts. 
and the um the security guard who what's his name frank wills i think his name is he um he spots the tape and he thinks oh that's weird on the on the doors leading from the car the garage underneath the the building and he takes the tape off he then goes off they sneak back again and put the tape the door back again <laughs> he comes back they've gone he spots the tape again he thinks this is really weird and he calls the police so the cops pitch up they arrest these fo- five blokes the walkie-talkies and what then happens is one of them in his address book has um hh howard hunt um the guy who was you know one of the plumbers and the fbi start to they think this is weird it's kind of some political crime and they 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 basically trace that number and they're like oh it's a white house number <laughs> that's very weird so at that point the interesting point the interesting question which some people have raised i know is at that point what can nixon do what can the white house do it's a difficult one so six days after that there's what's called the smoking gun conversation because of course nixon is taping himself he's inherited a taping system from lyndon johnson so what why is he taping himself don't um don't you tape all your conversations tom well i am at the moment (laughs) um not not all why is he i mean that's a really good question Previous presidents had, had experimented with taping, so Lyndon Johnson, most obviously. Um, Nixon does it. It's a weird kind of self-protection, I think. If I record my conversations, they can't be used against me. I'll have control over them. People won't be able to say things that I haven't said. Um, who with, knows? I mean, that's, that's, I mean, there's a fatal flaw in that, isn't there? Yeah. Well, if, if, you, if you're saying something that's massively incriminating... You then. just must make sure not to say anything stupid. Um, yeah. And... Uh, on the tapes, I mean, what what it means, actually, interestingly, about Nixon is, I think Richard Nixon is prob- possibly the most well-documented man who's ever lived. In goodness, because even even now in uh, well, maybe maybe social media and well, maybe I don't know. I mean, we have hours. We don't have private. I suppose private conversations. No, that that's the gold dust, isn't it? But the interesting thing is, we have conversations that are utterly rambling inconsequential i mean there's some of the hilarious conversations nixon sits there with his sort of the berlin wall as they're called Haldeman, ehrlichman kissinger and so on and often they're just wittering in a way that would make us look erudite i mean they are <laughs> good nixon is sort of saying they're talking about how homosexuality brought down ancient greece nixon says he won't shake hands with anyone from san francisco because they're all gay they have these ludicrous conversations about um which had more influence, television or Socrates? <laughs> um, they're just sort of wittering. Good question. And Nixon is, and they're always, Nick, all his, he's also slightly showing off to them because he's always got that thing of, he's the school swat who wants to prove he's a kind of man's man. So he's always. And he's the president, isn't he? Yeah, he's, so, he's always kind of trying to show off and say, you know, but he's also trying to be more aggressive and reactionary, I think, than he is in, re- in reality. So he says lots of anti Semitic things, lots of racist things. Um, which I, th- which which people in other contexts have said, God, I can't believe Nixon could have been saying that because he was never like that. But I think he's so. It's like someone going going on a a cricket a, tour, or, Tom. <laughs> no, not on a cricket tour, on, on a social media or something, and showing off. Exactly, that's exactly what he's uh, yeah. doing a lot of the time. But anyway, um, that's a bit of a sidetrack. So on the twenty second of June, nineteen seventy two, he has uh, the crucial conversation 
with H.R. Haldeman, his chief of staff. Haldeman basically says to him, he says, what's going on with the Watergate thing? Now, I think that the way this conversation goes, you can read the transcript, suggests that Nixon didn't have a lot of prior knowledge of the burglary. He knows they're his guys, and he's like, what are we going to do to fix it? And Haldeman says, well, it's not great. You know, the FBI are tracing the leads. They've traced them to, they're tracing them to Hunt and Liddy. You know, it's going to come inside the White House. And, and Nixon says, well, okay, here's how we can shut this thing down. What we'll do is we will get, we'll call the, you call the CIA, the head of the CIA, and you say to him, call the FBI and tell him this is a top secret kind of CIA-ish operation involving our Cuban guys. Don't follow this. It's national security. It's a whole can of worms. It's just a, 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 a bit of a mess. It's also a storm in a teacup. It's nothing. Don't get into it. Just back off. That's his that's his plan. And um, and that, of course, is the incriminating thing, because that shows that Nixon is right then trying to obstruct justice. And that's the conversation, the revelation of that conversation, which we'll get to later on. That's what really brings him down. The fact that he knew straight away and he tried to stop the investigation in its tracks. OK, Dominic, you said later on. We've re- I think we've we've recorded 50 minutes worth. Have we? 43 yeah, minutes, we have. Tom, according to my... 43 minutes. OK, well, I reckon, I reckon that this... I think we should stop here. And I think we should put out another episode to follow on tomorrow. OK. And, um, and when we come back, we'll look at the attempts to... At, at the cover-up, how it comes out. Yeah. And then how the, uh, the, the process of the, the, um, the pardon and the afterlife of Watergate. Cool. I'm looking Does forward to it. Good I'm idea? very excited about tomorrow's episode now. Uh, and and the, the, the reason this pleases me is that you were very rude at me because <laughs> uh, I didn't get to the Battle of Thermopylae and Salamis in time. No, you didn't. So you uh, didn't. I, I, f- I feel it's. But we did get to the Watergate breaking. Come on, give me a bit of slack. Yeah, we did. We did. Yeah, you did. You're better than me. <laughs> All right. So, um, so thanks for listening to this episode, guys. We will be back tomorrow with the uh, the aftermath of the Watergate breaking. See you then. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.